0: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am all smiles today as I have been all morning because I am sitting down with Kelly Cervantes. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to getting to meet you. You and
0: I have so many people in common and I feel like every other day somebody's have you met Kelly do you know Kelly and I a little bit feel like I've known you for a while because your folks sent me your book I think I've had it probably for a month and it I opened the mail I loved what the cover looked like and I just dove right in and it's a book that when you Jump in. You can't just jump out. So I'm gonna hold it up for folks um, who are watching this. But it's normal, broken, and the subtitle is "The Grief Companion for When It's Time to Heal, but You're Not Sure You Want to." God, I've yeah. chills just that little subtitle. Oh man, is there so much uncomfortable truth?
1: There was a lot of thought that went into that very wordy subtitle because I I came to write this book begrudgingly because. I didn't want to heal for the longest time. I kept picking up grief books and reading the prologue and a couple chapters. And I just wasn't every, I felt like the assumption was that I wanted to heal and I wanted, and I didn't. And I really struggled with that. And I, the other piece of that subtitle that really means a lot to me is that it is a grief companion. It is not a grief guide because I don't believe that you can have a guide in grief. We all grieve differently. Yeah. It is nonlinear. But what I found the most helpful was having someone to just sit in the dark with me, a companion, someone who understood it, who had been there and and that been there in, in grief and in deep loss. Not necessarily mm-hmm. child loss like my experience was, but that idea of just having a companion or a friend who's yeah, me too. Yeah. I, yeah. Well,
0: because it's so lonely and isolating. And so that's, I joke about this, that when my dad died of cancer in 2017, I really just like my brain didn't work well enough to read. And when my mom died in 20, I couldn't stop reading. But what would happen is I would make it halfway hundred pages in and somehow the writer in writing about their experience, which is what the book was. Betrayed my experience. And I would just throw that book across the room. Okay, forget it. You're dead to me now. Except that really what I felt like about it was God, every book that I pick up and read, I find a little bit of myself inside there and a little bit of myself, maybe that isn't the simplest and the easiest to talk about in the wide world that wants us to have like our mascara and our lipstick on and go and have like lunch with friends. I just didn't feel like I was a part of that world very
1: easily. No, not in the slightest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I want to jump in and talk about your book. But first, can you tell us how you come into this world of grief and loss?
1: I feel like at some point I started calling myself a professional griever. My daughter Adelaide was born in 2015 and she, it was normal pregnancy, everything fine. She comes out and we start to notice pretty quickly that there are a handful of things that aren't going right. Abbreviated version, she is in early intervention services by the time she's three or four months old. She's diagnosed with hypotonia, has her first seizure at seven months, is diagnosed with infantile spasms at nine months, which is a particularly devastating form of pediatric epilepsy, which is notoriously difficult to control. So I start grieving the life that we thought we were going to have as a family, the life that we thought she was going to have and, and trying to find some sort of acceptance in the life that we would have with her. Six months before she passed away, she passed away in October of 2019. And uh, six months prior to that, she was, she was, she passed away five days before her fourth birthday. And Six months prior to that, we discovered that whatever was causing all of her ailments, we never got a diagnosis while she was alive, that it was neurodegenerative and there was nothing that the doctors could do. But up to that point, we had been fighting and trying to find answers and solutions. And then we found out that there wasn't going to be any. And so then we start this anticipatory grief process of knowing that and making the choice to let her go and to enter hospice and and then watching her die. And so when, by the time she finally passed away, I remember looking at my mom, who's a mental health therapist Mm -hmm. and saying, I feel like maybe once she dies, it won't be so bad because all of the grieving that I've already done, that should count as time served, right? Like I've already put in all of this grief. So maybe I'll get released from grief jail early. My mother just smiled and told me she didn't think that it worked that way, and of course she was right because mothers. And I don't think I quite realized there is there's the anticipatory grief, there's the grieving the life that you thought you were going to have, and none of that prepared me for what it would be like to grieve. Yeah,
0: I we talk about in the field of grief and loss, sort of participating. That's the, that's my word. Like when you are participating, you understand what's happening. And so all the minutes, the kisses on the forehead, you understand that these are limited. And so maybe like your brain is taking little sips of this grief, but it doesn't really prepare you for what it's going to be like when there's no forehead to kiss. Right. Of course. As opposed to people whose experiences are their child was alive and then two seconds later is not alive, which maybe is gallons of water instead of sips of water. So Mm -hmm. they're different, but they're different in terms of how your brain and your body are in the experience. And one of the things I'm so struck by in your writing, your reflection of your experience, is A, you are really honest about a bunch of things that I feel like people don't necessarily either want to think about or don't know how to talk about. The anticipatory grief is one of those. Like you, you talk about that as a wanting that to count, wanting that to be something that is going to allow you to let go of your daughter in a simpler way. And then you say, that's not at all what happened, right? Like you lead us in and you say, that's not at all what happened. You also talk about, again, you do this sort of beautifully, but you talk about people grieving in different ways, loving each other, but grieving in different ways and really misinterpreting each other in those ways. And you talk about missing the role of being a caretaker and how it defines you. Those are re- all three of those things are not in every grief book I've ever read and are really, we want to feel like my partner was there for me and they stood next to me and we grieved together instead of part of what you talk about, which is we just grieve differently. And mm. what we want to hear is it was terrible and then it was over. And part of what you say to us is it was terrible and it was over and I missed you have this big thing about syringes that just about knocked me over.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is in the I resisted for the longest time accepting my role as Adelaide's primary caregiver slash nurse slash therapist. I wanted to share this responsibility. Miguel, my husband and I have always very much evenly parented. yeah. And when Ad- we understood how sick Adelaide was and how much care she was going to require. And I remember this moment where I was just so frustrated with Miguel because it was all falling on me and this was something we had done together. Now, mind you, all of this is happening and he is opening as Hamilton in Chicago. He's a little distracted and busy. And I, my life had flipped upside down because I had been our breadwinner prior to this. Yeah. And so I was very resistant to this change, but I came to accept it and I grew to love the role. Mm -hmm. It was, it becomes a love language Mm -hmm. to show Adelaide how much I loved her and how much I cared for her. And you establish these relationships with the nurses and the doctors and the therapists and the, the count, the cashier at Aubame Pam and the hospital and that becomes like another family to you. And then all of a sudden those people, that tie to those people is cut and your entire identity as a caregiver to a disabled child and all of this uh, information that is stored in your head, it's all gone. It, you, The information is all there, but you have no use for it anymore. Yeah. and it's just it becomes you you don't realize when someone is grieving prior to you experiencing such a deep loss you don't understand that they're not just grieving that person yeah. they are grieving all of the things and the connections that came with that person yeah, yeah. So much more complicated.
0: You write about that so beautifully. You write about Adelaide's nurse and understanding that when Adelaide dies, this nurse who has been also in the trenches with you all is grieving her and with her own love and care. And then those caretakers aren't a part of your life anymore, which really, again, just, I think we talk a lot about caring for someone who is ill And most of the time, I think when people are talking about it, they're talking about people being like maybe the elderly
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and it sounds like a burden and it is a burden and then it's over. And because when we're talking about the elderly where they've had a long life with Adelaide, none of that is true.
1: No, but that actually pulls into sort of what you were mentioning before about everyone grieving differently because for my husband, when Adelaide passed, he still felt a sense of relief Yeah, that you might feel if you are caring for someone who is elderly and has had a long life and it is a lot of work and it is so hard and then they pass away and are, there can be a sense of relief. And I'm sure most people are going to feel guilty for feeling that relief, yeah, but it's but it's normal. And when Adelaide died, Miguel felt that relief. He felt that relief for her. He felt that relief for me, for our family, because there was nothing we could do. I have, don't know that I've ever experienced that relief. Yeah. yeah. I still yearn to take care of her, Yeah, know, this and role that I never wanted.
0: Talk about that. Cause again, I think you write really beautifully about this thing that almost feels like it should be illogical, but it also makes perfect sense to me. There's a, it, or I think it's early on in the book, you talk about falling asleep to the noise of her oxygen tank. And I, what it makes me think about is like how it's our bodies that know the world, that we understand the world with our five senses.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That sort of is our compass and our tether in a lot of ways. And there's something about that the white noise where I was like, Oh, I so understand this. I get that her body was soothed by this, that in order to get rest, it needed a, a connection to yeah. Adelaide. That was that concrete. But for people who are listening, who are like, what do you mean you were resistant? What does the subtitle mean when you're not sure you want to heal? We're all supposed to heal. Talk to us about, cause you do such a nice job of this.
1: I. I think that I had a different understanding of what was expected of me when it came to healing from grief. I was under the impression that it meant that I got over my loss in some way, that I was moving forward and leaving Adelaide behind. And... That was never going to happen. No way, man, not a chance, not on my (laughs) watch. That was impossible. So if this is my understanding of what healing is, I was like, that's insane. I'm never going to do that. What I came to understand, and it it came, was actually the night before Joe Biden, President Joe Biden was inaugurated. He had this speech, this beautiful speech as a a commemoration and memory of all the people that we had lost from COVID. And in that speech, he said, to heal, you must remember. Mm. And I was like, okay, hold on, wait, what? To heal, you must remember. I was Mm. like, that went against everything I thought that healing was. And I started to understand that healing didn't mean moving on. It didn't mean leaving Adelaide behind. It meant learning how to move forward with her. That my grief was never going away because that would be like, not like stopping loving her. At that point, grief and love are the same. And I'm never gonna not love my daughter. It's learning how to fold that grief in, fold that love in and still move forward. That is what healing looked like. Not forgetting. And leaving behind, but remembering and bringing her with me into the future and in allowing myself to have a future that is with her, not in the sense that I would love, not in the sense where I can hold her and kiss her and sing to her and read to her, but in the sense that I keep her memory alive and that she is always with me in big ways and small ways. And that was healing. That is when I could start truly healing and moving forward and trying to find a way to at first be okay. And then eventually allow myself to be happy again.
0: I think you're describing something that's so critical and also makes me want to apologize as someone who's been in the field of grief and loss for so long. It breaks my heart that the understanding that you had is the understanding that so many people have that the world is just waiting for you to forget About your daughter and go back to being normal instead of listen this is how it goes down when you lose a primary attachment your entire life pivots significantly Mm -hmm. and the road that used to be in front of you is no longer there and you're probably going to have to get like an excavator and a cement truck before you can even move, even imagine moving forward, you got to create a whole new pathway forward.
1: And you have to accept that you're a whole new person. You're never going to be, I will never be the person I was before Adelaide was born or before she died. Correct. That person is gone. Yeah, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think at all. I think that Adelaide made me a significantly better human. And her loss, as much as it broke me, also made me more understanding and compassionate and empathetic. And would I rather be less of all of those things and have my daughter? Of course, but those aren't the decisions that we get to make. So why don't I make the most of that and accept this new version of me? But in doing so, I have to accept that I'm never going to be that person and then then it becomes extra complicated because the people around you need to accept that you are never going to be that person again.
0: Too. Ooh and none of that is easy. And again I feel like the thing that you are saying and write about so beautifully is these are universal truths. That when you are fundamentally changed by a loss People waiting or I've talked about this on the podcast. I had a friend recently sit me down with a lot of pain. She was really said it in a loving way, but essentially what she said was, I'm waiting for the old you to come back. And I was like, oh, honey, I didn't know you were waiting and she's never coming. And yeah. that must be so painful for you. And I understand if that means we need to release this friendship, but I, that's like wishing I was six inches taller. I don't have the capacity
1: to give you that. No.
0: And I am, I have come to terms with that, but in the early days after my mom died, I could feel that people still looked at me like I was that old height Mm -hmm. and I couldn't bear it. I couldn't be, I could be around strangers but I couldn't be around people who like knew me as you talk about the roles of mother and wife and caretaker. For me, it was like adjectives like people who knew me to be like organized and kind and thoughtful and prepared. I was angry. I was totally disorganized. I had no control over my thoughts. And most of the time I was 20 minutes behind and I didn't like being that, but it turns out on this side, four years later, I'm more of that still than I am similar to who I wasn't. And you said something that I just love, which is you'll never be the person you were before you were her mother either. That is the thing that fundamentally changes us from the beginning is becoming her mother. So I want to ask about that. You can go in either thread because these are the questions that are in the back of my mind. How did you navigate with people like Miguel or other children or friends who Needed you to help and guide them while you were doing your own process.
1: <laughs> Miguel and I grieved so drastically differently. And, and that came as a surprise because during Adelaide's life, we had grieved very similarly. We had check-ins to see where each of us was emotionally, how we were thinking about her treatments moving forward. All of that, we had openly communicated we had been on the same page and we it felt like we were on parallel tracks she died and everything veered it was like we were on two entirely different climates yep and I wasn't prepared for that yeah yeah and what I had to come to terms with and I actually think this is just it's so important for any stressful relationship situation is that we put so much pressure on our significant others to be the everything for us yeah to fill all of those gaps to be everything that we need and what I had to discover was that what I wanted most was to someone who is gonna sit on the bathroom floor with me and hold my hand and Miguel couldn't do that he just he, he couldn't yeah, do that for whatever reason his journey that was not something he was capable of doing yeah so when it came time for Adelaide's one-year anniversary of her passing I knew that he wasn't going to be able to do that with me so I called in a friend from Chicago where who had known Adelaide and was grieving Adelaide as well and she laid in bed with me while yeah. I cried and then Help me to laugh and to figure it all out. And sometimes you have to outsource yeah. the help that you need.
0: Yeah. Extend the web. I really wanted to say to you that by describing both your marriage and you two as grievers in your marriage, I think you have given people permission because I think there is a fantasy that we're just in the boat with our partner and we meet each yeah. other. So it's the Jerry Maguire baloney that like, we just meet each other's needs, but but Miguel describes like wanting to have privacy almost like when he is in his feelings. And it's a thing in therapy that I ask people, I say, what kind of a crier are you? What kind of an emotive are you? Are you in the shower, in the car, in an empty room? Do you need that? Or do you do better welling up Actually, we were talking about Barry Liner Grant a minute ago. She sent me this beautiful text because she got my book this morning and I was in Target and I was like full on, I was in Starbucks. I was full on sobbing in Starbucks and a couple of people came over and because she sent it and it was reminding me of something. And I was, but for me, it's safer to cry amongst people. I'm going to get more dysregulated. It's scarier for me to be by myself. And yeah. if I have to be by myself, I send texts to people to be like, just so you know, I'm going into the deep dark cave of grief and I need you to know, cause I, it's scary for me. I am much more likely going to sob in front of a group of strangers waiting for their morning latte. <laughs> and so I really appreciated that Miguel, that you didn't hate him for that, that you let him have his process without I mean, took a
1: minute.
0: punishing. Oh,
1: no, I get it. I get it. I resented him for a minute. I couldn't understand why he couldn't be with me. Yeah. Why that, what, why he could, I felt so lonely. Here we were, this was the person who should understand my grief the most.
0: And share it.
1: And share it. And he, yeah. and, but it took, it took sitting down with a therapist to yeah. help us navigate that conversation. And when I understood that I think what I needed most from Miguel was just to know that he was grieving because I did, I never saw him grieving right because he was always doing it, did in it in private yeah and I just needed to know that I wasn't alone in this and months after we did therapy he came down into the kitchen and he I was getting his morning coffee and he's while I was grouting the shower last night. I was thinking about having Adelaide in this house and what that would have been like. and i I started to to cry, really, just thinking about her and just knowing that he had that moment meant so much to me. And it it maybe felt awkward for him to be like, "Yeah, I was crying left. I, I could see how that would be awkward, but it really did mean so much,
0: yeah, I get it because he came and sat next to you on the couch where your tissues are all about balled up. He didn't sit yeah. there and cry with you. Cause that's not his way, but he let you know that like his tissues were upstairs in the tub. Yeah. And I, you know, there are different ways that people experience their emotions. And it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about this, although I've written about it, that when my dad was dying of cancer, My husband was really absent because he was starting a company and he needed to travel a lot. It was something we had agreed to. We didn't know my dad was going to spend that year dying, but we're, there's not a lot of daylight between us otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so for this huge thing to be going on in my life, like something, something that was so present in so many minutes of every single day. And for him to not be present with its presence felt like this crazy betrayal. And I sat with a the therapist and she, she said, so the story you're telling yourself is if your husband had behaved differently, it would have been less painful for you. And I was like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> My dad dying. No, like maybe I would have felt less lonely. Maybe I would have mm-hmm. felt like I had some comfort. But yes, actually, that was the story that I had been telling myself, that there was some possibility that someone could do anything other than just keep me company, just yeah. help me feel like I wasn't going to lose myself into the pain. Yeah. And in reality, there there is this, this misnomer, this fiction out there that couples get divorced after they lose a child. Turns out that data was totally m- miss extrapolated from one thing that one person said one time in a study, but it is something that's out there that losing a child is so hard in a marriage. And I think you write really beautifully about what is hard. And then it's like also deeply intimate mm-hmm. because even though it's awkward for Miguel, you guys know each other in this space that you couldn't have known beforehand. Cause you never lived in this space together before.
1: Yeah. I, in, in, a weird way, it did make our relationship stronger. And, and the deepest part of our grief was happening during the pandemic. And so we were in our house, unable to really leave and forced to be together. And I'm eternally grateful for that. At the time when the pandemic is happening, I'm like, cruel joke is yeah. the world's playing on me that this is what's gonna happen. But had that not happened, Miguel actually... Jackson and I would have been in Chicago Yeah, we were staying there to let him finish up second grade. And Miguel had moved back to New York because he was starting as Hamilton on Broadway. And so he got 10 shows in and then landed back in Chicago with us to quarantine together. And it was such a gift because it would have been that much more difficult, I think, if we had been separated by a plane ride. Yeah.
0: The other thing, and you talk about it too, but the other thing that just feels like, God, the world is such a painful, screwed up place all the time, mm-hmm. and also unbearably beautiful and electric and amazing. But this thing happens in your husband and your family's career at the most devastating time. The juxtaposition of these two things is just, it's like a razor's edge.
1: It is, it's bizarre. Miguel booked Hamilton the same week Adelaide is diagnosed with epilepsy. She dies. And the same week they offer him Hamilton on Broadway. It, Miguel early on in our journey with Adelaide and Hamilton described it in an interview as holding onto a rocket in one hand and a parachute in the other. Nice. And at the time I was like, yes, that is exactly what it is. What's interesting As time went on, they started to flip places a little bit where Mm -hmm. I got so much of my purpose and my energy from Adelaide and taking care of her. And even after she passed, like trying to create a legacy for her, writing this book, all of these things, that became my rocket. Yeah. And the fact that Miguel had to leave every night to go do Hamilton felt like a parachute, felt like what was like (laughs) holding us. And so it was so interesting to see how they flip-flopped but it, it Hamilton and Adelaide will be forever intertwined in the journey and the story of our lives. And it, it is utterly bizarre the how the highest of highs and the lowest of lows can happen at the exact same time,
0: yeah. I'm thinking about, I've, I have I've 7 million threads because again, in your book, you just offer us a lot of very beautifully written on like flat honesty. There's just not a lot of flowery, look, this is how it is. This is how it feels. I'm, this
1: is I'm how a little it, blunt.
0: <laughs> and I just, I, I'm really, as somebody who needs the world to know, I'm really grateful for the way that you've been able to put it together. Can you talk about what the role of writing was for you? Like, how did you come to writing? What was the, I'm always interested in the ING, the verbing of grief. And you tell us in the beginning, that's what writing really started out for you. So can you just let us into that story?
1: Writing was everything. I've been in therapy. I am on a handful of medications. I, all of the things that you traditionally do to help process grief, none of that helped me as much as writing did. I actually started a blog um, called Inchstones prior to Adelaide passing away. And it was, it was originally meant to be just like this crazy journey we were on me as this, as Adelaide's caregiver and all of the craziness that was going on with Hamilton and this wild journey in life that we were on and sharing that and keeping people, friends and family updated on what was going on with Adelaide and, and trying to connect with people. And then after Adelaide died, it uh, very quickly veered into me writing about my grief journey and what I was experiencing. And what I quickly, very quickly learned was that if I could take these absolutely crippling thoughts that were swimming around in my head, that were totally amorphous, these blobs of anxiety and fear, and I could try and wrangle them with words, I could lasso them with words and put them onto a piece of paper or a keyboard and confine them in some way, that they became significantly less scary and much easier to understand and process. And I know there's all this scientific evidence of like it moving thoughts from one part of the brain into another part of the brain and how that actually, but it was that process was incredible. What perhaps was even more incredible to me was then when I shared it, yeah. and I would get the feedback from people who would be like, Oh my God, yes, me too. And then I'm like, Oh, I am not some like oaf who is like moving through this bumbling life. I am not. So bizarrely shattered and broken that I'm unrecognizable. What I am feeling is normal. Everything that I am going through, I'm. I, I came to the realization that people would be, say you're so brave for sharing it, and I'm like, I don't see it that way. So what I discovered is that it it's not. I am not unique in my grief. I am just not that special in anything that I am feeling or experiencing. And when you come to that conclusion, it becomes a lot less scary to share because you know that someone else is going to feel that and knowing, getting, finding those companions in grief, finding those people who are like, yes, me too. I felt that. When I lost my mom, I felt like that when my aunt just passed away, when my friend and my spouse, how like there are all of these commonalities and coming to that realization. So it was, the writing was twofold. There was the writing that was immensely powerful in helping me process, but then there was the sharing of that too. Yeah,
0: I totally get that. I really love the way that you just said that. And I think, so I teach this class, which is called process to product, which is about process writing, creating a narrative that you can live with, getting the thoughts out of your head, just as you're describing them. And, and we get deep into it. Like what pen are you going to use and what paper are you going to use? Cause it's all about you seeing you first. But I really think that 97% of our life when we're grieving is minimized that if I'm out walking my dog, maybe my my maybe my neighbor's good. Megan's better now. Right. And so it's almost like I constantly, since we don't wear the black morning clothes and I'm not crying all the time, I really do need to have those words go out and bounce off of someone else who says these are meaningful to me. And that yeah. when I started writing, when I started writing, I put I put things like out on Facebook and I would have these uh, like emotional hangovers. I'd be like, oh, that was too much. I said too much. I'm a therapist. People are going to think I'm crazy. I have that fear a lot. People would say it to me. Are you sure you should be doing this? And then I'd have to take a bath to regulate my body. I would need to like get in hot water and just calm myself down. And probably by the time the bath was over, and I only had nine friends on Facebook, but many of them, (laughs) lost parents, there'd be a little, hey, thanks for writing that. And I'd be like, okay. All right. No, absolutely. Another day, and then you get more used to it, and maybe you take more risk with it Mm -hmm. because it matters to you, and it matters to someone else. And then it's then the grief is held between you. Yes.
1: Yeah. No. There was absolutely so I post my blog every Friday, and it used to be that I I would crash out on Fridays at eight or eight or nine o'clock because I would just be so exhausted from a putting the words out there, but then also there's like the processing, the reactions to them too. And it's just such this intense exchange of feelings. It would wipe me out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, again, I think grief is a full contact sport, right? Like it's a, it's inside ourselves and it's inside our body. And that thing that you were talking so beautifully about, then you move forward for a while, you don't move forward. You sit on the ground, all injured and hurt. And when you're sleeping maybe, or when you're resting, maybe your cells are regenerating so that they can carry not only the weight of it, but the reality of it. Right. And because a lot of what you talk about, and we talked a little bit about it off mic, is that it's all the adjustment of how do I identify I had somebody on the podcast a while back and they kept saying that when they were an orphan and they were an orphan and their parents and the guest had been young when her parents died. And she said to me as a fellow orphan. And I was like, who is a fellow orphan? And I was like, oh, me, because I don't have parents. Oh, that's what you mean. I, my parents now I'm almost 50. I don't think of myself like little orphan aunt, but in terms of words, if you want to yeah. use words to describe yourself you could use that word. Right. And I, I'm not a daughter the way that I used to be a daughter because my parents aren't alive anymore. It's,
1: I I feel like I'm on like Kelly 4.0 or 5.0 at this point. I've gone through so many iterations and careers and ways that I think about myself. And it is, I'm like, I was an event planner in New York city and worked crazy hours. And then Overnight, I was Adelaide's mom and Miguel's husband and Jackson's mom. And that was like my entire, to the point where like, I would be in the hospital and they would be like, are you mom? That's just, are are you Adelaide? You You lose your name. I didn't. And I was, I would go to an event with Miguel and they were like, oh, you're Miguel's wife. And I'm like, I'm Kelly. I I have a name. I But I lost who I was and that- and then Adelaide passes away. And I'm like, wait, if I'm not Adelaide's mom, who the heck am I? If I'm not a caregiver, if I'm not giving meds five times a day and fighting with insurance and scheduling doctor's appointments and driving her, who I, I was forced into retirement mm. from this job that i had grown to love and had to start over and figure out what I want to do. And that's, Thankfully, I had this writing thing going and I was like, "Okay, this seems like as good a a good of an idea as anything. Let's see where this takes me. But it is a little bizarre to be like refiguring all of this out in my 40s when most people I feel like have a better understanding (laughs) of what they are or maybe not. I don't know.
0: I don't know. I don't know that anybody, I think, first of all, I think we're all susceptible to incredible tragedy and tragedy changes us. You may have people, friends in your forties who just haven't had the big hard thing that then makes them step their feet on the planet differently. And I think sometimes people look like they have their shit figured out and that's just the way it looks. But I do really appreciate the way that you're describing. I think it's Glennon Doyle who talks about ask a woman who she is and she'll tell you who she loves. She'll define herself by her roles and who she's committed to and who it. um, And but I do think that helps us understand how we spend our time and our days. And there's some beautiful writing about your caretaking hours with Adelaide. And what it reminds me of is that the most alive we are is when we're in the present, when we're not like in the past and when we're not projecting out into the future, but we're just in this moment. Yeah. And one of the things that is really, it's just salient in when you're describing being with her is that she, she brings you right into the moment that there are, she's, you're just with her. You're caring yeah. for her and you're with her and it isn't more complicated than that. It I felt
1: also really- firmly believe that, ho- that 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 you walk into a hospital and it's a time warp. Yeah, time not yeah. time does not move the same in a hospital. Yeah. It?
0: <laughs> no, but if
1: there is something
0: about the way that you write about being a mother to at because you understand that she's ill and you come to understand even when you don't know that illness is gonna ultimately be the end of her life. Her illness requires so much care.
1: yeah.
0: And it does feel to me a little bit like, I don't know, like the image of the washer women where you're just, your role is to take the water and bring it from the seaside up to the bucket and back down. And
1: that's a, that's a life. That's a way. It was very soothing and calming to be with her. She, had a presence about her that just made the rest of the world fall away Mm -hmm. whether you were reading to her singing to her she it it even exuded from her she hated children's music like baby shark she would (laughs) kick and scream (laughs) and close her eyes to the Uh. world and then our nurse discovered that when she put on jazz music specifically frank sinatra my she God. would calm and she would still, and she would start to open her eyes. Every kids are the Even best, day they, day they day
0: have day. their own little personalities that are not
1: absolutely. I firmly believe, I, of course when you can't buy a child toys because she was non-mobile and non-verbal, you buy them a lot of clothes and books and like accessories. And so Adelaide, she had the best wardrobe ever. And so I would always dress her in these adorable, cute, frilly things. And, uh, but I firmly believe, (laughs) and tons of hair bows. I firmly believe that had Adelaide been neurotypical, she would have wanted to be wearing like a camo tutu and or something like she... Did not tolerate Uh any fools. She let you know exactly what she wanted, when she wanted it. She was so much more than words and mobility. And being in her presence was really special. It was, she was, she was just pure love and energy. So this
0: is October. This is her birth month and her death month. This is a big month and your book comes out so soon yeah this is a it's not that you the universe ever gives us any
1: any quiet ones. this is not exactly how I wanted it to go but it's how it you learn when you're publishing a book how little control you have yeah. when it comes out yeah. and the only thing I told them I was like it can't be in October I can't I cannot do so, this so they gave you November October. 7th they really so they gave yeah. me November 7th and I was like great we're gonna we're gonna Keep rolling. And, but there's a piece of it that I love and appreciate because, I I don't know, the this week, uh, she passed away on October 12th, her birthday was the 17th. That week and sort of the time around it, I feel like maybe the veil between my world and hers thins a little bit at that time. And I feel her a little more strongly And there is nothing I want more than when I'm talking about grieving her and this book and then to feel her with me and to know that she's along for the ride. And so as emotional and exhausting as it can be, there is part of me that appreciates this natural connection that I feel to her at this time of year more than any other. Matt,
0: I love the way that you say that because again, like your subtitle, like everyone believes that you want to get over grief, except grievers who understand A, that's never gonna happen, and B, that's not really what we want. What we want to do is not be overwhelmed by it. And I think in months, so many grievers I know have like trifecta, like three things that happen over the course of three weekends or three days in a row, or there's just a there's a lot of rapids that happen in the grieving process. And I think there's the belief out there that people want to do that with the least amount of pain possible. Mm. And I don't know. That's always what the grievers want. I think the grievers Mm. sometimes, I don't know, like we, we want to reach through it and remember the love and the pain all not, we don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer, but the pain is not the same as suffering.
1: Yeah, no, I it's funny. I have a chapter in the book that's when you're facing anniversaries or other meaningful dates, and it's the shortest chapter in the book. And I actually just wanted it to be like, they really suck. I'm, I'm sorry. You just have to survive them. And my editor was like, I, you actually have to write more there. Give us a lot more. A lot more. <laughs> it is, they are, they do suck, but there's something about letting them suck. And allowing yourself the day, because as time goes on, there are all of these expectations. There are all of these responsibilities. Life is moving forward, whether we want it to or not. And we get dragged along. And sometime, I've noticed as the years pass between Adelaide's life and now that Sometimes I feel like I have to put my grief on the back burner so that I can focus on something else. And on these days, on her death day and on her birthday, I allow myself the space to just be with her and grieve and miss her. I block my calendar out. On her death day, we have a tradition where we go to a sunflower farm and we pick sunflowers. Sunflowers have absolutely nothing to do with Adelaide. They don't remind me of Adelaide. The, it's just an activity to get Perfect. us outside yeah. and to eat up the day, but it's just a day where we get to miss her, and I appreciate that day so much because, whether nature of time yeah. having passed, but I feel like I I push a lot of grief down, yeah, to survive, yeah, yeah, because it's expected of me, and because I have to, because I have other children that I'm caring for, yeah.
0: yeah. But you describe that really beautifully because I often ask people about what's their grief practice. Like, how do you tend to your grief? And some for some people that really stops them in their tracks. That's I don't intend it that way, but there's oh, I just cry when I need to cry. And I think there are things like I know that I'm gonna get to really be in my feelings on this day. Mm-hmm. I know that on the holiday or this day or that day that I those feelings are coming for me anyway. Yeah. And so probably I'm going to feel the ones of that day and maybe a whole bunch that I didn't because I got to live my life and yeah. living my life with heavy, unbearable grief in every moment is impossible, yeah. but we don't want to dismiss it completely. And so it's a neat way of thinking like, oh, that's what an anniversary is for. That's what it could be used for is yeah. to really let yourself marinate in what, 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 is true to your process, which is you carry this with you all the time. It's such a beautiful book. It's such an honor to talk to people about the true experiences of their lives. And I do, every time I pick up someone's book, I feel like, God, you're helping us change the whole culture of grief and loss and what, you know, what we don't do right, even though we could do it right. Like what we don't do well, even though we could do it well. And you and I were talking off mic about, we have this little culture of folks who all know each other that tell these stories and care about telling these stories. And the idea that grief does change us in our identity. I love the message that your book gives us, which is just like a a message of truth and hope. And also that it may be, giving you the opportunity to do more writing and more speaking about this topic that you do with tears in your eyes and a smile on your face, which is great, (laughs) which is what we all need. We all need the, the
1: of the pieces, right? Yes. 100%. Yeah. I'm just, I'm beyond grateful to, to enter in officially into this grief community in this capacity and to Hopefully let normal broken be the companion that that other people out there need.
0: So for listeners, if you want a copy of Kelly's book and you can't find one or afford one, reach out to my team. We will send you one. Kelly, if people want to know more about you or your work or get you to come to speak to their group or host a book party with your b- new book, how do we do how do we do
1: that? What's the best uh, one? So you can reach me at Kellyservantes.com
0: we'll put that in the show notes.
1: Simple and then my Instagram handle where I'm the most active is kellygc411. We'll and put that.
0: We'll put both of those yeah. in the show notes so that people can. And is there anything upcoming where people could see you that you yeah, so tell us about um, that. Um
1: yeah, so there are I have a book tour coming up where I'm crisscrossing the country here in mid November, a couple zoom events coming up one with family action network out of Chicago at the end of November with Christy Tate, the author of group and BFF, which I'm really excited about. And then hopefully more to come. So Miguel is actually hanging up his Hamilton jackets on January 7th of next year. And I'm hoping that we can go out on and do some events together, which should be fun. So stay tuned, keep eyes out on the Instagram and sign up for the newsletter and yeah. So you can find out when all those. Yeah. Are. Let's
0: all go follow Kelly because then we'll know where she's going to be and when she's gonna be. <laughs> good luck with the book. Good luck Thank with everything. You. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here.